What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down. I'm Amira, and today I'm joining up with Jessica and Shireen to dive into the news that was this week in college sports, most of which, all of which, has us particularly ragey this week. It's happening around, and also, like, the, the, this is not me, I don't have a racist bone in my body, like, we've confirmed racism is not a bone disease. <laughs> it's not gonna be in your body in that way. We will also preview this week's interview episode, burn some things, and shout out some torchbearers. Let's waste no time and dive right into it. Um, I did want to say to y'all, this is March 2021, which feels impossible since it was just March 2020 and we're still trying to wrap our heads around March 2020. So we're officially a year into the pandemic, not necessarily a place we thought we'd be a year out when things started shutting down in March. I think a lot of people's Instagram and Facebook memories this week are the reminders of the kind of last things that we were doing when the when the world shut down. And so I know that this year has been relentless and we've chronicled um, the difficulties and, and the losses and, and all those things. But I also want to say like, okay, we're here a year later. If you're looking back at this past year, is there anything that has emerged to you as not necessarily silver linings, but we talked about capturing those rays of light? What over this past year not only got you through it, but like, what do you look back on and say, this was a clusterfuck, but this thing I'm going to remember fondly? Clusterfuck, yes. I started a master's program at Ryerson University, and I love my cohort. I love my classmates. I'm obsessed with them. I didn't know them, like, in the end of August, but now I can't imagine my life without them. Also, can't wait to see Ricky Martin and Enrique Iglesias in concert because that's what the universe took away from me in this pandemic. Yes, folks, I still have the life-size cardboard cutout of Enrique that I got on my 40th birthday. Love you, Arendira. I'm just saying, I'm ready for those men to dance on a stage for me and me dance in the audience. I will be vaccinated. Hopefully so will my country, which I don't know how the rabbit hole outs are going. God, this went down a rabbit hole. Anyways, I'm ready. Vamos. <laughs> Jess? That's interesting, Shereen, that you say that because like the very first thing we canceled was we were supposed to go to Toronto to see Pearl Jam. And, you know, we thought, oh, in the summer or something. But, of course, here we are. Who knows when that will happen? When I was thinking back on this, of course, I launched a book in the middle of all this. And that was amazing. And I actually get a lot of travel anxiety. So one of the silver linings for me was that I did it all from my house. I mean, it would, of course, been amazing to, like, see people in person. uh, But not having to travel to a bunch of places was actually uh, nice for me. And then I was just on a personal level – there was a phase that my family went through where we played a ton of board games. And I think we're all just out of patience and our nerves are frayed at this point. So maybe we'll get back there. But I just, those weekends were so 
slow and fun and I don't I don't know that we would have had that time otherwise. Yeah, I I think that um generally like my digital groups like variety of them from like digital peloton groups um which include uh like a instagram group that i have of people from all parts of my life who do peloton i mean childhood friends and college friends and high school friends and current colleagues um and that's lovely black girl magic in in peloton but also like people that i've met through peloton who i'm now friends with and and do kind of accountability stuff with but not just that i mean my writing groups have literally got me through this year in terms of trying to write um and like to have people on like five days a week i have between my two writing groups um, and and they're predominantly black women and just like getting on and seeing everybody's beautiful face and being inspired by their brilliance um, has been really a necessary, consistent thing um, that has developed. So these digital communities have, have given a lot. And of course, that includes Biad and, and moving to Zoom allows us to see each other, you know, when we record as well. Um, and so that is what I'm thinking of and what I'm going to bring with me into this next chat. Look at my, Shireen's holding up my bedazzled name from our uh, So You Think You Know Your Co-host game that just dropped on Patreon. So if you're a Patreon uh, supporter, go over and watch our shenanigans. Um, All right, (laughs) y'all. College sports were showing their whole entire ass this week. And what's wild is it's not even March Madness. Like, we are just on the brink of one of the most exploitative, terrible features of college sports. And that's not even what we're talking about this week. Um, The stories that we dive into today, um, I felt important to talk about together because they are interconnected. And if we have these conversations um, together, we can understand just how exploitative and harmful and abusive and enabling um, these these kind of racist and sexist uh, systems are and how this harm continues not just to exist but flourish within college sports so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about lsu we're going to talk about um creighton's uh, basketball coaches comments about the plantation we're going to talk about the university of texas and beyond um and linking these things together and moving through these stories to kind of wrestle with and sit with uh what they tell us um again and again about college sports so uh, new stories, but the same old sad-ass song. To kick us off, Jessica, you have done tremendous reporting along with Nancy Armour and um, Kenny Jacoby um, with USA Today on um, LSU and their many violations of Title IX, among other things. There's updates this week um, that we have, particularly around Les Miles. I was wondering if you could give us those updates and talk about you know, where things stand now. Yeah, so it was a busy week for LSU News. I think the three of us, Kenny, Nancy, and I, um, I think we put out seven or eight pieces. Newspaper writing is so intense, Um, but it was just incredibly busy. So there were two separate reports that came out. The first was actually from 2013. So eight years ago, LSU hired an outside law firm to look into reports that their then head football coach, Les Miles, that he had texted female students, took some of them to his condo alone, made them feel uncomfortable, and on at least one occasion kissed a student and suggested they go to a hotel after telling her he could help her career. Miles has denied 
kissing the student and says he was only mentoring these young women, but the law firm found his behavior inappropriate. LSU issued a letter of reprimand, required him to sign forms stating that he had read and understood the school's policies. He was also ordered not to hire student employees to babysit for him and to cease being alone with female students altogether. Still, he was not fired for another three years after he had a poor start to the football season. He was hired by Kansas as their new head coach a few years ago. We knew about this report months ago, but after Kenny requested it, the school denied the request. So USA Today had to sue. It turns out, and we know this now that we have the report because USA Today won, that the school had promised Miles that they would fight the release of the report in court if it ever came to it. Kansas, of course, is now under fire for whether or not they're going to in some way discipline Les Miles, possibly fire him. Last night, they told us that he is now on administrative leave. So that report was on Thursday. And then on Friday morning, LSU released a 148-page report from a different outside law firm, this one called Hush Blackwell, that looked into how the school overall has handled reports of sexual harassment and violence over the last six years or so, though it also includes the Miles stuff. And they found that there was serious institutional failure. The Title IX department was way understaffed. I think they had two people. And without the resources it needed to do its job, the preventative education was found to be confusing and so in many cases ineffective. Hush Blackwell also noted that there have been five different reviews. I just want everyone to sit with this one. There have been five different reviews of LSU's Title IX policy in the last five years before Hush Blackwell's. And LSU never did anything with any of that information. The only two individual people disciplined were both in athletics, both because of how they handled cases involving football players, Executive Deputy Athletic Director Verge Osbury, and Miriam Seeger, a Senior Associate Athletic Director. Osbury was suspended for 30 days without pay, while Seeger was suspended for 21 days without pay. They both have to do training on the proper handling of sexual and physical violence complaints. There's more to say here. It was a 148-page report, uh, but I do think that gives a pretty good overall recap from these two different reports that we saw this week around LSU. My goodness. Like, it's just... I don't I don't know if surprised... I, I'm not surprised, but it's just... When you, sit with, when you sit with it, it's astonishing and disturbing. Shireen? I just have a, a question, actually, Jess. Sure. So in this process, and I, I'm so grateful that you are literally the world expert on this. Is there no system in place or have are they creating a system of reporting for this? Because sometimes we see my very limited like knowledge and working with survivors of systems of, of toxicity and violence. It's often the ones at the helm of whatever that hold the most power when they're abusive. There's no way to report them. What does this look like in the college football world? Yeah, it's really difficult. So it was interesting yesterday, the lawyer from Hush Blackwell, uh, Scott Schneider, when he did his presentation to the Board of Supervisors, which is where we all first learned about all of the stuff from the report. Uh, when it comes to athletics, he mentioned Baylor uh, multiple times. And he said, like, the lesson from Baylor was that you can't have athletics being involved at all in any of these cases, right, that you need. There has to be independence. And so one of the hard things is to get the athletic department to give Title IX all of the independence to do these investigations and to, to take seriously whatever the outcome of that is. And I just think it's really difficult to 
untangle all of these threads because we know, like in our reporting, we kept saying over and over again that when Les Miles was at LSU, he was the highest paid employee in the state. So certainly the highest paid employee at the university. And so even if you have all these policies in place, whether or not they function properly is often skewed by the power differentials that are involved. And that's a real difficult thing to work out. And so trying to get all of this stuff to go through Title IX like it's supposed to. The problem at LSU actually in the last few years, we Miriam Seeger and Verge Osbury definitely didn't do that. That's why they got punished. They, they kept stuff in-house. Uh, but a lot of the stuff they did hand over at some point finally to Title IX. And then Title IX just had nobody. They just didn't have the ability, whether or not they were competent enough is not really even in question here. Part of the point is we can't even tell if they were competent because they were so overworked and overwhelmed and overburdened mm-hmm. that like mm-hmm. no one can succeed in the in, in the system as it was set up there. Precisely. Wasn't it like mm-hmm. they had a coordinator and then uh, like there's like a staff of two or three right? yeah. for, for a camp- 30,000 students? Exactly. That is something like that. Wild. And but like even and so that's low compared to peer institutions. But even when you look at Title IX offices across the nation, you're talking about staff of three, maybe five. And that, you know, we talked about this before around Title IX. It's intentionally vague. We know that with administrative changes like we've seen, um, there's a million other things like thrown at it at the last minute. They're called to enforce a lot of different things. It's hard to not only have the bandwidth, but it's that... You know, Jessica, one of the things that you taught me and, and the world, you know, for those who read your work is like, it's not, a lot of this is about enabling and enabling um, comes in many forms. And it's it's not just like individuals making like choices to like not engage or look the other way, but it's also when systems are set up in a way to be ineffective and then enabling is not correcting or reforming or trying to figure out these systems. So the vagueness, that gray area under Title IX, right, that that we chip away at in many different ways but never address is one of the things that, like, the toolkit, right, that, that schools are given is not their faulty tools. It's like giving giving sand toys to somebody and expecting them to, like, build a house with it. And um, the other thing I wanted to say is, like, I just wanted to thank you and Dan for the reporting you did on on Baylor and the way that you, in that case, like, really set a standard. And obviously, I know you talked about this, like, Baylor's referred back to a lot, but what we've seen over and over and over again is that it's too many institutions, right? And, you know, of, of course, in Unsportsmanlike Conduct, you talk about the playbook and, and the need to, like, write a new playbook for dealing with this. But I also think that, like, just need to be said, like, how much lifting that you and Dan did with that initial reporting that has changed the way we even can report and talk about and consider these stories. And we're just at the tip of the iceberg, but it feels like you know, we don't reckon enough or, or wrestle enough with the fact that it like took the two of you being <laughs> and carrying like a really heavy load to even get this conversation to where it is now um, and how exhausting that must be. And I just wanted to to take time to say, um, to say that. 
Thank you. It's so interesting because Dan and I, of course, were talking about this yesterday and just I tweeted a little bit about this, but we just had no idea what we were like. We knew what we were doing. We we're competent. But like we didn't understand like that five years later, I'd be listening to this thing and they'd be talking about Baylor. And, and that's not, I mean, it's a nice it's a nice feeling to see all those dots connected. And I just wanted to go back to your point about um, how the system itself is set up to allow all the slippage that we see all the time. And and I just will reiterate that there have been five reviews in the last five years of these policies and found them wanting in the exact ways that Hush Blackwell has found them wanting. So the fact that nothing was done when this was brought to their attention, the system was functioning in a way that was okay for the last five years. And so we should pause and think about why this moment it was not okay. Shereen? Yeah, I have um, a, another question just about this thing and that since you've reported on Baylor with Dan and I was wondering, and maybe I'm being too optimistic, half, half glass, glass half full, can't say that words properly. Have you seen a shift at all? Is the dial moving at all, Jessica? I think it's moving. I think this is a really hard thing to evaluate. Um, the efficacy of these kind of changes, it's it like people don't like when you ask that question to them because it's just really hard to put your finger on things that go well. And I say this all the time as a journalist, people don't come to me when they're like, hey, I had a great experience with Title IX. Like they have no reason to reach out and tell you that. So what I hear all the time tend to be negative stories. So it's hard for me to say the fact that I don't know a ton of what's going on at Baylor could mean that things are smoother there when it comes to this process. I'm never going to say anything is perfect at all. I wouldn't even come close to that. But, you know, it could mean that they learned to shut it down again in a way that we hadn't anticipated. And I just don't know at this point how to tell. But it does feel, I mean, I don't know how you guys see it. It feels different to me. I do think it's possible. I don't know what LSU will look like in six months or a year or five years. But if they do the one thing that they said yesterday they're going to do, which is immediately um, create a much bigger staff uh, to handle this, that will matter in some real way. That probably won't fix, it will not fix all of the issues, but it will fix some fundamental things. And so hopefully that is better. I just, the thing I always say about this is we need, we want it to be right right now because we know that when it's not right people are being harmed and it's really hard to hold that like it's going to be a slow process and we know that means that people will be harmed as we get it right and I just think yeah I like to think that it's getting better I have to think it's getting better Mm -hmm. or else why do any of this but I also am you know I'm not naive and it's slow. So one of the things that jumped out to me about the Les Miles report was um in it that talked about how he was really hands-on in the hiring of student workers, in particularly in the um, pursuit of the certain quote-unquote look, right? Attractive, blonde, fit, um, obviously white. And uh, basically the report talked about how Les Miles made supervisors feel that student workers that did not hit this look, right, should be pressured to be terminated and receive fewer hours. And it got me thinking about this look, which cops up many, many times, whether we're talking about hostess programs, we've seen things 
and conversations around that at Vanderbilt and and, and many other places where um, that's like seen as a recruitment tool, right? Or we've seen this conversation about the look in terms of um, policing the sidelines of football and basketball games. Shereen burned uh, uh, stuff at Northwestern uh, cheerleading, and this is one of the off-mentioned things for cheerleaders of color on dance teams, which is that um, the look of who gets to represent the school in those official capacities is really curated. So the optics around sports and the preoccupation with this look rests on majority Black labor force in terms of athletic labor, a majority attractive white blonde cheerleading dance team recruitment hostess program, right? And then the student body and the alumni and the fans, like this is the lay of the land. Um, the racial disparities in terms of who has control, who's working, who has the power, absolutely contribute to this idea of plantation politics when it comes to college um, sports and particularly college basketball and football, uh, men's basketball. So one of the other things that happened this week is that uh, Greg McDermott, who is the coach of the Creighton men's basketball team, uh, had a post-game speech in which uh, he said to his team the following, we have to stick together. We need both feet in. I need everybody to stay on the plantation. I can't have anybody leave the plantation. So it almost felt like he was saying the quiet part out loud. Um, what has happened since uh, is is that he's been suspended. He put out a statement offering to tender his resignation. They did not accept that. They just suspended him. Um, he talked about, you know, the pain and hurt he caused. This comes on the heels, of course. You know, Pat Chambers, our men's basketball coach here at Penn State, um, resigned after uh, it came out that he had referred to wanting to, quote, loosen a noose around a player's neck, um, a fencing coach was uh, fired at St. John's um, after making derogatory remarks about Black people. Obviously, in January, we talked about the football coach at Tennessee, uh, Chattanooga, who was uh, smearing Stacey Abrams in the state of Georgia. And so it's it's part and parcel of a kind of reckoning that is rooting out some of the ways that plantation politics persists, but this was particularly stark because it, it said it, it said it right there. It said the word plantation. And what's wild to me is like this, uh, Regina Bradley, this academic uh, author, uh, had this great quote about plantations because everybody doing the gymnastics would be like, well, what about, it, it wasn't racist, right? Like rushing to the defense of McDermott. And Regina was like, okay, let me get this straight. Like white people want to live in subdivisions named after plantations, want to get married at plantations, like want to go to plantation themed balls, but don't want to reckon with the fact that literally the idea of a plantation is predicated on like enslavement and, and the ghosts of, of slaves and, and things like that. And that's kind of how I felt about this is that like the fact that these are the analogies that coaches like reach to tells you exactly what you need to know about how they even see the system consciously or, or unconsciously. Um, I don't know if you y'all caught these remarks and, and had reactions to them. Yeah, I think this is interesting because I had heard that like the little, it's not even a defense, I guess, but I've heard that he was supposed to probably going to say reservation, which is also its own messed up um, imperialist, whatever. But he didn't, right? And the point is he's looking at a bunch of black men and the word that comes out of his mouth is plantation. And I'm with you, Amir, that it is the idea that like anyone's arguing that there's not 
racist, not even undertones, overtones to saying that to a bunch of young black men in a system that Taylor Branch very famously, however many years ago in the Atlantic, said had a whiff of the plantation. Like, it's exactly it. And I just, I... I don't really even have like a smart thing to say. It just seems so obvious. And so like the fact that we're even like that this is a debate of all is ridiculous. And I'm glad that Creighton at least did something in response to this. Shereen? Yeah, just about the apology that we always hear. Um, I'm so frustrated with this because the automatic result is, well, that's not who I am. It's like, bruh, you literally said it. It is exactly who you are. I don't know how to process that when I see those words come out. Well, this isn't who I am. And this is what I've done. And these words don't reflect me. They, they, they came from your mouth. Like, how does, how does that work? Like, I don't. And also like, I'm so sick of it. Like, I don't actually care if it's you or not. Like, I don't, I don't need to know you. Like, it's telling me enough about like what is happening around and also like the the this is not me I don't have a racist bone in my body like we've confirmed racism is not a bone disease (laughs) it's not gonna be in your body in that way sorry I don't mean to laugh but that is so good it's not right like everybody always want to like I don't have a racist bone okay cool but also I think one of the things that really like drove home these remarks is that like it's not just like the viral video of that uh strength and conditioning coach making his black players uh hold the chair squat on the wall while holding a weight and he literally ran on top of them while they was, were singing while they were si- it was like so like oh. the ugh. but also of course good old texas uh university of texas provided a stirring example of said plantation politics on the ongoing battle over the eyes of Texas and and the controversy there, if you recall, we've talked about this on the show before, um, black players and black students there and black alumni have talked about, you know, not wanting the song, the racist song to be to be a in existence anymore, but particularly not requiring student athletes to be on the field for it and to sing it and to engage in that way. Um, and one of the things that came out this week was a bunch of emails um, from uh, donors voicing their feelings about uh, said song. Jess? Yeah, I thought it was funny. So on Monday morning, pretty early on Monday morning, Dan texted me innocuously and it just said, did you see this? And I was like, huh, I wonder what? And then he sent me this piece by Kate McGee at the Texas Tribune that was all about these emails, Amira. And I just like, it's not that I'm surprised by it, but like everyone I think should be upset that this is like how there are still people functioning at this point. So they were all kicked off because uh, when UT played Oklahoma, uh, which is a huge rivalry game every year, all of the players for the Longhorns left the field before the eyes of Texas, except for a white dude named Sam Ellinger, who was a quarterback. So there are all these images of just him alone on the field while the I guess the band, played The Eyes of Texas. And so alumni were really mad about this. And like poor Sam Ellinger out there on his own, blah, blah, blah. And so the Texas Tribune, Kate McGee, she put in a records request for all the emails that the president got, I guess that said The Eyes of Texas after this. And I just want to quote three of them. I think they're a good representation of what 
of what people were saying. So, quote, UT needs rich donors who love the eyes of Texas more than they need one crop of irresponsible and uninformed students or faculty who won't do what they're paid to do. And I just want to, like, point out here that the students aren't paid. Quote, it's time for you to put the foot down and make it perfectly clear that the heritage of Texas will not be lost. It is sad that it is offending the blacks. As I said before, the blacks are free and it's time for them to move on to another state where everything is in their favor. What fucking state would that be? I'm sorry. <laughs> and then someone named Larry Wilkinson wrote, quote, Less than 6% of our current student body is black. The tail cannot be allowed to wag the dog and the dog must instead stand up for what is right. Nothing forces these students to attend UT Austin. Encourage them to select an alternate school now. Maybe Mr. Wilkinson should consider why only 6% of the student population at UT is black when 12% of Texas's population is black. This might all be related, Mr. Wilkinson. So the part that really got me, though, in the piece was that a mother concerned about her son's mental health wrote to the school for help. And according to the Tribune, it, quote, appeared to go unintentionally unanswered. When a student affairs employee asked if the president's office wanted to respond directly, the office declined. A communications director wrote, quote, if you think we can help, that student, then please proceed. I'm afraid the eyes of Texas issue is requiring a lot of bandwidth right now. And it's just that moment where you're like, what is this university for? What are we doing here? So it was just, it's not surprising everything we know about the University of Texas and racism and this country and racism and college football and racism. But there is something very stark seeing it laid out that way. And I would just add, uh, because I'm a student at UT, I get all the emails. And we got an email at 4.57 p.m. on Friday. So this came out, I'm telling you, Monday morning early, Dan texted me. Friday at 4.57 p.m., we got a letter from the president of the university condemning racism and saying that he actually disagrees with the Texas Tribune's characterization here that like these were just a handful of emails among all of these of support. The Tribune was really clear. There were about 300 emails, 75 of them sort of fit this mold of like being really angry and wanting to pull money uh, from the school for this. And so on Tuesday, apparently we're about to get, they created a committee. So when the, when the football players said, we don't want to walk out <laughs> onto the field under this racist song anymore, you need to end it. Uh, the president's like compromise was to create a committee. Of course, this is such a university bureaucratic bullshit way to handle anything where they were going to look into the eyes of Texas. And that report is supposed to come out on Tuesday. And I'll just say it galls me that we're still acting like having a what he called a fierce, nuanced conversation about this, about something that is just racist, is worth anything at all. Like, I just... It's so wild. It, it goes back to what Amir is saying. Like, why are we arguing about whether or not telling a bunch of black men to stay on a plantation is racist? Like, this shit's just racist. And we should act accordingly. But these emails make clear this tension between the donors and the money who are racist and clearly willing to say so directly to the president. Uh, that tension with, like, literally just doing the right thing. Absolutely. And I think that like uh, important point to make is like the downplaying of like how many it is really doesn't matter because right. it's like, what do you give weight to? And in this case, one of the things we know is that schools are absolutely concerned with their donor uh, base and absolutely policing the actions of black students. 
motivated by the fear of that donor base. So whether it's 75 letters or one letter, if you're then enacting the concerns of that, right, that, that's what matters. And in this case, we know, um, right, Shireen, that players have now talked about being pressured to remain on the field for the song. Yeah, I think it goes back to like this culture that Jessica and Amir, you guys were both talking about, is that, you know, the systems of racism are so deeply embedded and the football program is like a stunning example of this. And I just am going to also mention a Texas Tribune piece that Amir threw to me, um, and we'll have it in the show notes, but it's words from the players, from the black players, and particularly this one from a junior linebacker, DeMarvian Overshone. And I couldn't stop thinking about the sentence. Like, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And the instruction to them who were told to stay on the field was, quote, they said, y'all don't have to sing it, but y'all have to stay on the field. And y'all have to go over there and at least show fans appreciation for coming out and watching you guys play, end quote. He further went on to say, quote, it was really eye-opening. There are some high power people that come to see you play and that can keep you from getting a job in the state of Texas. End quote. And this is basically coercion and this is basically threatening a young black man that I'm going to derail the career that you haven't even started if you don't do this. It's like the collision of mental angst, stress, fear. I can't imagine. And now this this young athlete is supposed to go play and supposed to go perform like the layers of terrible, horrific. I can't with this. And getting back to those words, university is supposed to be a place of enlightenment it's supposed to be a place of growth and dare I say safety like this whole thing is a mess and I'm I'm so grateful to these players for speaking out because again identifying himself will also lead to a multitude of perhaps you know being isolated or there could be repercussions so I do also want to shout out the athletes that spoke out publicly because that takes an incredible amount of courage yeah so in some ways this story is about Texas um Jessica, if people want to dive deeper into this about UT, um, where might they look? Yeah, so we had Frank Greedy on the show in episode 194 where we talked a bunch about Texas. And I just cannot more highly recommend his new book, The Sports Revolution, How Texas Changed the Culture of American Athletics, which comes out on March 23rd, which is so soon, Frank, from the University of Texas Press. And there's just... There should be more on this. I mean, I'm, I'm working on my dissertation about all of this. It's it's really, there's a sad, of course, there's a sad, deep, dark history, not even deep, uh, dark history here. You can find it. It's shallow. It's on the surface. And so what we're seeing today, I mean, when I was reading the Texas Tribune article on Monday, I think I texted Dan, this will be the epilogue of my dissertation. Because I'm writing about the mid-1970s, but these are the exact same things that we're seeing in 2021. And we should just be deeply concerned about, as Shereen said, this is universities are about growth. And we're just in the same fucking space. We just have a different way to talk about it now. Absolutely. And while this story um, and that example was from the University of Texas, it's also a story much bigger than that. The similar dynamics are at play in universities across the country where uh, aging, wealthy donor base um, is trying to assert their own vision of universities and having a direct line of access to the people in power. And a lot of this is particularly um, centering around athletics um, as either the site of controversy or the place where the optics are kind of 
um, most fiercely contested. I think that sports are an essential part of the conversation of the of the relationship between donor power and university influence. This immediately made me think of um, debates that we're seeing at Texas A&M around statues and, and monuments on campus. And they have a very active um, Black student athlete organization, the very real fear of upsetting the donors there. It also made me think about Old Miss because that is like literally to me the mountaintop of a lot of this conversation. Um, and I just wanted to remind everybody or refer people to if they haven't um, been familiar with the story. Ashton Pittman had a great three-part series in the Mississippi Free Press um, three years ago or so um, that looked at many things in Mississippi, but also told the story in particular um, using emails from the journalism dean to a bunch of donors who had um, (laughs) just who are very concerned, right, about the old myths that they now see. And I just want to talk about one of those. In September um, of 2018, Will Norton, the, the dean of the journalism school, um, got an email from prominent donor Blake Tarrett, uh, who was a graduate of, of Ole Miss, who had been in town to watch a football game where a lot of donors come back to and had seen and taken a picture, uh, somebody else had taken a picture of a black UM student downtown in the square, put it on Facebook and said they're allowing prostitutes on the square, like this is terrible, etc. The same person had documentedly interacted with um, white women students who were also dressed like they're going out and said nothing, said hi, took this picture and circulated. It also prompted a lot of emails. Uh, one such email from Tarrant said, emailed the dean to talk about how far he felt that uh, old Mrs. Culture had fallen. He said, quote, you did not see the square, the fights, the real African hookers. Mark my words, if it does not stop, we will have a shooting in the square. This is serious. I know how hard it must be. The old Miss Culture has been ruined. It will never be fixed. Just like Houston, it will never be the same. And it went on, he went on to... Uh, respond to him and say, um, once the shooting happens, they all will wish they never stopped playing Dixie and made up a stupid story about um, Colonel Reb. Even the gangbangers and the 62-7 to beating by Alabama is bottom. Um, It's a disgrace to Old Miss. I had to watch the blind side to make me feel good about Old Miss when I got home. I'm really sick today because of all of this. I can't take it any longer. And to me, it's this obviously was one of the first things I thought about, right? Is what one of the things that the emails to me reveal, right? And what he's saying very, very loudly, right? Is we're losing the culture here. And the fact that he points out stuff like Dixie, right? Which is the same kind of battle you're seeing over the eyes of Texas. The point that he's talking about the rethinking of mascots and statues like we're seeing at TAMU and across the country. As he is saying this in this email and the very presence of black students, right, is also read as threat here. Um, And that to me is one of the things that you're seeing at institutions across this country. And as the emails evidence, as the 
kind of concern about the optics and reputation and heritage of these schools, so much of that centers and is propelled by sports. And this is why I think it's important to think about these conversations together because it's about optics. The donors are coming back through, you know, these football programs and and to these games and they're looking for the curation of an Old South nostalgia with the playing of these songs, even if the schools are integrated. They're fine with integration as long as it produces black players that will win for them, right? But that's it, which is why the spirit squads and the dance teams still need to be lily white, right? I do research on that. I have an article about, you can find it on Black Perspectives about black cheerleaders. And one of the things that they did, the black women who were cheerleaders, when they protested for inclusion, they said, you want our boys to play for you, but you don't want us to cheer. And they they figured out that line in the sand and, and what it represented, And so when I think about the look that Les Miles is trying to promote, and when I think about uh, the power that people are cultivating, and I think about these systems, and I think about enabling, and I think about how everything is kind of moving along as usual, to me, it's literally the curation and, and sustaining, right, a system that is is predicated on a majority Black labor force, but also on the spectacle, also on the racial politics, the plantation politics of of these sports that now people are saying the quiet part out loud and, and people are kind of, their ears are perking up, but it's been going on for a while. I just wanted to end this discussion by giving space to the voices of Black alumni from Texas because one of the things that is missing in these conversations is understanding that Black alumni exist, but why they they don't have the political power, A, because these schools were segregated, and so therefore they don't have uh, as long a history of Black alumni groups, but also a lot of the philosophy of philanthropy at these schools is predicated on finding alumni who had m- wonderful experiences at these institutions and then want to give. And a lot of Black students coming through PWIs are, are about the people and the networks they gain there, not the institution itself. But our friend of the show, Courtney Cox, UT alum, over on uh, The Sound of Victory on their podcast, Sounding Off, uh, together with Perry Johnson, hosted a roundtable of Black alumni a few months ago talking about the eyes of Texas. And I wanted to uh, toss it now to Courtney to introduce a clip and play a little bit of the conversation they had. Hi, y'all. I'm Dr. Courtney Cox. I study sports for a living. I'm also a longtime listener and big fan of Burn It All Down and, you know, occasional guest. And if the y'all didn't give it away, I'm also from Texas, a designation that feels more and more like a confession these days. Given the recent actions of state politicians when it comes to basic utilities or rich donors when it comes to a certain school song, I can admit we're really raggedy right now. As a two-time graduate of the University of Texas at Austin and a former employee of Longhorn Network, I've heard the eyes of Texas more times than I can count. And that's why when UT football players joined together in protest of the song, along with several other key demands to make the campus more equitable for everyone, I was really intrigued. So much so that I created a two-part roundtable on Sounding Off, the podcast I host with music scholar Perry B. Johnson, featuring six Black UT alum. I felt like their voices were missing from the conversation and wanted to have them weigh in on what the song means to them and how the university should respond. Fast forward a few months and a school song to the tune of I've Been Working on the Railroad is still getting heavy rotation. 
Most recently, after a slew of nasty, bothered, racist emails came to the forefront, thanks to Texas Tribune articles by Kate McGee and tweets by several UT players. For this reason, I'm grateful to Burn It All Down for allowing me to share a portion of the podcast. If you want to hear more, you can find both episodes of Sounding Off wherever you get your podcasts or at thesoundofvictory.org slash soundingoff. The next voices you'll hear are Warnessa Hightower, Andrew Lilly, and TJ Finley. I know we talk about two Americas right now, and I feel like this situation has, has highlighted two UTs at the very least, because I know listening to Clarence Hill here in Dallas on ESPN radio, he's mentioned that this song is, I don't want to say boycotted, but the black community as a whole, or you know, generally speaking, hasn't really taken part in singing this song since the 80s. You know, so this, and, and Nia could probably speak to this, you know, better than I can since she was there before us, but I just know this has been a situation for decades now, you know, and it, it's almost like, to me, it's been the worst kept secret because it's like, look, as a whole, the black community does not sing this song. I've been to many, many, many uh, weddings of Longhorns and classmates of color. You know, we don't see that at our wedding for the most part, um, or at least I haven't taken part in that. Whereas you talk to, you know, white alums, and like, oh yeah, we sang it at our wedding and my grandfather had it played at his funeral and I played it at my retirement ceremony. And I'm like, okay, we clearly live in two different worlds here. Once I joined the board of directors of, of my chapter, um, I was at one point membership chair for um, my Texas Exodus chapter. And we had, and as membership chair, you're kind of like the host for, a, for the event. And they played the Eyes of Texas. And I think it was like the first time I had ever hosted the event. They played the Eyes of Texas. Um, I sat down, I, I handed someone else the mic and I said, I refuse to sing this song. And a couple of my other board of directors are like, Vanessa, you're being disrespectful. And I said, this song is racist. I just said it out loud. Number one, because at the end of a event, libations are flowing. <laughs> so the slip of the tongue just had no garter. Um, and so then I went to explain and they were like, oh my gosh. And so then I remember there was another event. I was still membership chair and I didn't sing the song and someone questioned it. And I remember one of my counterparts said, yeah, it, she has an issue with it. Um, Warnessa, I'm glad you stand up for your issue. I just remember her saying that very, and she she's she's supportive, she's an ally, but she really was like, I'm glad you stand up for your issue. That's your issue with the song. And so again, I'm like, at the time, I, I believe I was the only black person on the board of directors. And so it, it was just so interesting that I was so isolated from it. But then fast forward when all this George Floyd stuff um, came about and we were talking about putting out a statement about Black Lives Matter, I actually got an, uh, an email from one of my other board of directors. And he said to me, once you told me about the song, I refuse to sing it. And I've taught my daughter that. This is an older wh a white man. Um, and I, I just thought it was interesting because in retrospect, I never remembered him not singing the song too. I just remember I was kind of in this bubble of me sitting down, me sometimes screaming out, this song is racist <laughs> in the middle of folks singing it. Because um, we all know who Warnessa is. And it just, I, it was at that point to where I was detached from the other 
um, Texas exes and I felt very isolated and very alone, but to the point to where I didn't even notice I had an ally right there not singing it with me too. So that kind of shows like the emotion that's go that goes on with the song and the fight that you have even once you leave campus, when you decide to go to, uh, to these events, um, how polarizing it can be and how the tradition, it, 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 the tradition doesn't erase the hurt. Does it feel like, and, and just to kind of think about what Andrew's saying with this idea of two UTs, right? This idea of um, this woman saying to Warnessa, well, that's your, that's cute. That's your issue. Um, is there a way that this also kind of reveals both kind of these tensions located at like this idea of it not being a UT issue, we all need to grapple with as a university. It's like a disgruntled Texas X or these football players, or there's a way that there also seems like there's trying to be a segmentation of, well, just the black people have a problem with this song that is both inaccurate, um, but also speaks to this kind of uh, idea of, well, black UT does this, but we're, we're over here so they can get their issue there, but we're gonna do this over here. Does it feel like, that's also kind of been a thing, both past and present for y'all. It's like a perfect microcosm of like the double consciousness of a black longhorn. Like you, you are on the same campus as these all these other people and all these other mostly white people. You're on the same campus as them. You share the same experiences as them to a certain extent. You share the same traditions as them to a certain extent. You root for the same teams as them. It's it's a it's a stark reminder of who you are on the campus. It's a reminder of like you are something other, you are viewed as something other and your experience is something other because most of the Longhorns went through their whole college college time and either didn't know about the song or maybe knew about the song, but just didn't, it didn't affect their experience. It didn't affect the way that they experience a football game or it, it doesn't affect the way they experience these Confederate statues as they walk around campus. Like, And so you have these stark reminders that are all over. And it, this is not specific or special to the University of Texas. This is at every, you know, PWI, like there's Both always that reminder of yeah. like, you are the minority here. And this experience wasn't exactly created for someone like you. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it, but it just means that you're going to have these reminders of, I am other here and I'm viewed as other here, at least by certain people. And so, you know, the song is just like a perfect example of like, when that happens, you immediately go back into your body. And like, I am a black person that goes to a school where 3% of us are black, maybe 4% of us are black in a good year. And that's it. And that and, and we are we are in our own bubble, so to speak. And the song is like brings you back to that place. Life is too short to sleep between anything less than really nice sheets. But maybe you looked at some retailers and calculated the years of interest you'd pay on just one set or didn't like the post or it didn't apply to you. But trust me, go check out Brooklinen. You know what? I'm so glad you brought this up, Shereen, because I was thinking the other day, one of the hidden costs of adulthood is sheets. Like, you know, garbage cans, rugs, sheets. Like, why do they all sneakily cost so much if you want them to be of quality? And I haven't always been particular about sheets, but now I'm like embracing adulthood in a way. I've stayed in a lot of hotels and I've decided that like maybe I am a little bit of a sheet snob. But I was so happy to find Brooklyn in, which unlike a lot of other manufacturers, that really the price is just, you know, I'm like, okay, I want good sheets, but I don't want them that bad. And then Brooklyn in, which was started by Rich and Vicky, uh, you know, they, they had the same issue where they tried to find 
home essentials that weren't a million dollars. And when they couldn't, they founded their own company. And one of the things that set Brooklyn in apart is that they're the first direct-to-consumer bedding company. So they work directly with manufacturers to make luxury available to you, to me, to everybody without the luxury level markups. And Amira, you're not a snob. You're a connoisseur of fine things, which you deserve. They have a variety of sheets, colors, patterns, materials to fill everyone's needs and tastes. Whatever the decor plan is, whatever you want, you can find it at Brooklinen. Absolutely. Like, so I will tell you, I got my Brooklinen sheets and I spent a ridiculously long time. I called Jessica and I was like, okay, so do I get the luxe bedding with this pattern? So I ended up getting um, a graphite duvet cover and then the sheets itself are like a graphite and um, like smoky stripe. So the contrast is still there. And then I got like some navy pillowcase. So like that's my pop. And I got really into it. I'm very excited. I ended up going with the graphic grid because I have like a dark gray, almost purplish tone in my room. And I find that those colors, the other thing I noticed that the color swaths that they have are actually very calming. And I really need that in my life. So I'm excited about this. Listen, I think everybody should be excited about this. They have over 50,000 five-star reviews and counting. And if you don't love their product, they have a 365-day money-back guarantee. Plus, there's so much more than sheets. They have comforters, pillows, towels, even loungewear. So please, go to brooklinen.com, use the promo BURN to get $25 off when you spend $100 or more plus free shipping. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com and enter the promo code BURN to get $25 off when you spend $100 or more plus free shipping. Brooklinen.com and use the promo code BURN at checkout. Flamethrowers, may all your ups and downs only be between the sheets. This week, Jessica interviews bobsledding legend Kaylee Humphreys about her career, training, and competing in the time of COVID, and the fallout from her reporting emotional and mental abuse by her head coach when she was on Team Canada. At the end of the day, you know, we should all feel empowered to be safe and to feel confident in the environments that we're in, and we all have the power to, to choose that. And for me, it was walking away from a career that I had built up. Um, not knowing what the future was going to hold, but now looking towards building up a, a new career. All right, y'all, it's time for everybody's favorite segment, the burn pile. I will kick it off today, staying on the theme of fuckiness, <laughs> fuckiness, staying on the theme of ridiculousness in college sports. Um, and I'm going to say right here at home this week. Uh, this week, the Penn State Board of Trustees voted to approve the $48.3 million football building expansion um, to improve and renovate the Lash football building here at Penn State. This building, for folks who don't know, is the off-the-field headquarters. So this is where there are uh, meeting rooms, offices for coaches, staff, training and conditioning facilities, um, and like other work rooms and, and study rooms for students. Uh, so they have made an argument that they need to start these renovations now in order to keep up with the arms race in college football. Again, um, as Jessica and many others have pointed out, the way that a lot of football programs try to 
you know, diminish their returns and, and their revenue is by pouring it in to their facilities. Um, and so this is why you see like Alabama with like very fancy spa or LSU has like game seats. I can't just look at the pictures. It's, it's, it's wild. Um, so this renovation project would redo the lobby. It would create a hydro pool, like, you know, all of this stuff. It's ridiculous in any year, but this year in particular, when athletics, um, has had to furlough people because of COVID this year where, uh, Penn state employees across the university have been furloughed when department budgets have been sliced. We've just lost a whole bunch of resources in the library where maintenance projects have been deferred and, and moved down the line in this year where universities are trying to desperately hold it together. When student fees and, and tuition are in flux, when people are losing their jobs, when other athletic teams at Penn State have been told they need to wait until they have all the needed dollars in hand from donors. In this year, the Board of Trustees have approved this, which requires borrowing money from the university. So it's not even that they have it in hand, but they are asking for this and now have the approval to borrow this money from the university on the promise that they will attract donors, like we were talking about, to make it back and then move some of that money from athletics over to university operations. I can't tell you how frustrated this makes me. It was a 27 to 6 vote. So it wasn't even close. I'm very disappointed. And um, I know it's not the only place it's happening, but it was a smack in the face to see a $48.3 million approved with such a... enthusiasm in a year where so many others around the university are suffering and pinching pennies to survive. Um, But, you know, a hydro pool, a new lobby, priorities. Burn. 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 All right, Jess, what are you burning this week? Hmm. Man, Amira, I just think we got to figure out a different system here. Like, Maybe our higher ed shouldn't be based on a bunch of rich old people donating all their money all the time. Okay, so I'm also going to carry a theme here. So this past week, Texas Governor Greg Abbott announced that this upcoming Wednesday, March 11th, all statewide COVID-19 restrictions will end, including the mask mandate and limits on occupancy at all kinds of businesses. That means that starting on Wednesday, if the owner of an arena wants to pack it full of unmasked people, the government of Texas will not stop him. As a Texan who cares about other Texans and really just people everywhere, this scares me. Yes, things are getting better on the COVID front generally, but like there's a long way to go still until we're anywhere near okay. And that is without knowing what could happen with variants. Texas is not doing great getting their population vaccinated at the point when he made this announcement. We were like 49th out of 50 states as far as vaccination went. It's so dispiriting that the governor, mere weeks after massive governmental failure in terms of our infrastructure and the response to it, has decided to abandon the little bit that we were doing with regards to the pandemic. And I know that there are some states that have never had a mask mandate or occupancy limits, and I'm just deeply sorry to everyone who's experienced this kind of governmental abdication of responsibility. But the reason I'm burning this here is because Texas is, of course, about to host some major sporting events. The Women's March Madness Tournament which announced back in February that it would be it would welcome fans to San Antonio and the areas around it, including a couple games here in Austin. 
The Alamo Dome will be capped at 17% of its capacity. I hope this remains in effect. I hope it stays at 17%. The men's NIT tournament will take place in Dallas. The WNIT regional will be in Fort Worth. According to Mayatri, according to Maitreyi Anantharaman at Defector.com, quote, the NCAA is still free to institute its own mask mandates at tournament facilities and said in February that it will, but there's no telling how cooperative surrounding people and the businesses might be. And that's exactly it, right? This is a community. I am worried for the students and the staff that are traveling to Texas now. I'm worried for the fans who are going to attend this. I'm worried for the communities where this will be taking place. And I'm angry that such basic precautions that have been working in recent weeks were stripped away by an asshole governor who cares so little for his fellow Texans' well-being. I'm just so tired of being tired of what the GOP is doing in this state, and I just want to burn it. Burn. 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 All right, Shane, bring us home. So the burn pile hat trick clearly in the USA. That doesn't mean that the rest of the world is not a disaster. I just want to say that. Okay, so you may or may not have heard the absolute dumpster fire that happened during the USSF annual national council meeting. So contextually, what this meeting was about was actually voting around whether athletes should be able to kneel or not and protest an anthem. And as you know, they give space to people to use words. One of the people who used words was Seth Jen. Seth Jen is a former Seven Aside Para team member, also a former vet. Now, what he decided to say out of all the words he could have possibly used in the world was to refute any evidence that slavery affected people. So just bear with me here. He tried to debunk slavery. He tried to say that it wasn't as bad, and I'm paraphrasing badly because I can't even make sense of what he did say. And this is all happening live. So I do actually want to thank Steph Yang and Meg Linehan for the questions and the other tenacious soccer reporters who were on the call watching this in real time. And Paul Torino as well, Tenorio, sorry, of The Athletic, who got in there and were like, what's happening? And nobody took this man's mic away. This is the first thing I want to say. Nobody muted him. We live in a Zoom age. You can mute the fuck out of people. But... He kept talking and what he said was so wildly egregious to refute like anti-indigeneity and genocide, to refute slavery and go off in a nonsensical manner was just horrible. And to be honest, traumatic for so many people. Um, USSF, you know, is home. I'm going to use that term loosely to the U.S. Women's National Team who have done incredible amounts of work on their own squad and otherwise and been stalwarts for pay equity and in and other ways. In response, some of the players took to social media immediately, including U.S. team captain Becky Sauerbronn, to literally be like, this is not okay. Very soon after, Seth was released from the council, but only after USSF President Cindy Parlo-Cohn, Vice President Bill Taylor, and CEO Wilson really didn't do great with their words in explaining why he was allowed to use his for so long. And I do want to say this. I was extremely hopeful when Cindy Parlo-Cohen came on as president. But what she ended up saying about 
him was that diversity is actually not just about listening to what we agree with. It has to include things we may not agree with. No, Cindy. No, 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 no. That's not actually what diversity is. That's not what it is at all. So there's so many things that I need to burn here. So think of a domino burn. Think of that. So I want these things to be to like explode simultaneously or maybe one after the other and then all stay in the incinerator because USSF, you are constantly fucking this up. Racist do not need to be given a platform. They should not be part of your council in the first place. And I'm sorry, it didn't take a very deep dive into Seth's social media to see what an absolute racist, like twat waffle the man is. It's really not that hard. So anyways, I want to take all of this, all of this, and I want to torch it. Burn. 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 After all that burning, it's time to shout out some torchbearers of the week. I'll go first with a very special shout out to our very own Jessica Luther, Nancy Armour, and Kenny Jacoby, who are recipients of um, the AP Sports Editors Award for Investigative Journalism. Um, congratulations on that recognition of the work, the hard work that you did with USA Today on the LSU uh, reporting. Um, so that is where I would like to start. Yay. All right, Shireen, what is our day of the week? <laughs> I love this so much. In honor of Marta's birthday, the state of Rio de Janeiro has officially declared February 19th as Women's Football Day. So February 19th, y'all, it is still Aquarius season, might I say. Also awesome. Jessica, who is our... Um, official of the week. So the NFL has hired Maya Chaka as an official, making her the first ever black woman to hold that position in the league. In a statement, Chaka wrote, I am honored to be selected as an NFL official, but this moment is bigger than a personal accomplishment. It is an accomplishment for all women, my community, and my culture. Shireen, who's our baby of the week? Oh, I love this one. So for last week's episode, as you might have heard the interview I did with Jocelyn Monique Lemoureux, so Monique did have her baby. So congratulations to the family. She had told us that she knew it was a boy. So and they would support the baby in whatever the baby decided to do. So the name is Sunny Germaine Mirando. And we wish you all the best of health and happiness. And Jessica, who is our champ of the week? Clarissa Shields, who we interviewed on episode 141, became the first boxer ever, of all the boxers everywhere, to be the undisputed champion in two divisions in the four-belt era after she defeated Marie-Yves Declare on Friday night. Shields will soon begin training for her MMA debut, so watch out. And a drum roll, please. Our torchbearers of the week go to Sue Bird, Chloe Kim, Simone Manuel, and Alex Morgan for their formation and announcement of their digital platform called Together. These Olympic gold medalists have come together to feature original content and merchandise celebrating diverse uh, female athletes and aiming to change the conversation. They were appalled, much like we were, that only 4% of sports media coverage is dedicated to women's sports, and they got sick of waiting around for other people to solve it and decided to found together to do it, much like we decided to do with Burn It All Down. So, of course, we had to recognize them as torchbearers. I have to point out that their first original documentary series is dropping soon 
on the platform. It features Chantel uh, Chicanita Navarro, who's a California teen and boxing prodigy. It's called Phenom, so be on the lookout for that. And uh, we are so inspired uh, by these four torchbearers. Awesome spread in the New York Times where they all look fantastic. Please check it out. Um, So Chloe, Sue, Simone, Alex, you are our torchbearers of the week. All right. What's good in your world, Shireen? So I had a lot of fun doing Do You Know Your Co-Host. You know I love that. I do also want to say that I have two baby twin nieces, Ira and Isel, and they're beautiful, and I meet them at them digitally. I'm going to go do a porch. Like, I don't get to meet them, meet them, but I get to see them through um, <laughs> the, the porch window, and that's okay um, because they need to be safe. Um, I love them, and I FaceTime with them all the time, and they're sleeping a lot. But that's okay. They're like a week old. Um, I also just want to shout out the CBC Sports U event that happened online last week. It was a lot of fun. It's actually unprecedented in Canadian sports media to have people from so many different platforms, like across digital platforms, different networks. And, you know, Canadian media has suffered a lot of hits lately in terms of shutting down radio stations and layoffs. So it was really heartening to have this type of community here. And it was like this beautiful smorgasbord of like melanated people also, which we don't always see in, uh, well, we never see sometimes in Canadian sports media. So I loved, loved, loved that. And I got to share space with Renee Hess um, of Black Girl Hockey Club, who I love, Fithira Muhammad and Kayla Alexander of the Canadian National Basketball Team and the Minnesota Lynx. You may have heard of them. Uh, So love that. Also, this is going to be frivolous like most of my what's good. I am on a campaign to make myself a Salvadoreña because I want to be from El Salvador. Uh, You're asking why? Because I want to be an honorary (laughs) member. And... Okay, here's the thing. I miss street parties. I miss people. So I was doing some research on this means watching Hente the Zona videos, basically with Mark Antony. So I need to get myself to a party. And my best friend who's from Mexico City is like, no, you can't. That doesn't work that way. So I found my El Salvadorian peeps and they're like, of course you can. So I just want to tell everybody no. So if you're El Salvadorian, shout me out. Oh, <laughs> Jessica, thank you for letting me go first, Amir. Which I get to say, WandaVision's finale. <laughs> Ugh, I should not have let. Haha, unforced um, errors. <laughs> I'll let Amira say the most about that. I definitely, I cried real hard, Amira, <laughs> at the end. Um, but it was really fun to uh, watch Wanda become the Scarlet Witch. I gotta say, I think the series is super well done. And I will just say that my son was a Scarlet Witch for Halloween like five years ago, like way before it was cool to be the Scarlet Witch. Um, Later today, Aaron and I are going down to the giant indie racetrack uh, here in town. It's called the Circuit of the Americas, CODA. And they are trying to vaccinate 10,000 people in one weekend. And we are volunteering to help do that. So we're really excited to be outside for five hours, have a good reason to be outside for five hours. Uh, and I heard from friends who did this last week when they did their first trial run, I guess, at getting this vaccination site up and running, that it's just really fun to talk to hundreds of people <laughs> after being in the pandemic and alone for most of that. So I'm really looking forward to that. And then I do want to give a shout out to my dear husband, Aaron, who loves me so much that he will spend hours of his time. He 
was so busy with work this week, but he took time out to try to figure out the different ways that we can, all the different streaming services, I guess, that have the tennis channel. We're probably going to switch to Google Fiber soon. They've put it in our neighborhood. Um, Our AT&T is going up to like $100 a month for something we barely watch. Like we really only use it to watch sports. And so the big thing is that whatever we have uh, has to have the tennis channel for me. And he has just spent so many hours trying to figure this out. And I just love him. And that was what was good for me this week. That's amazing. Yeah, WandaVision was so good. It was so, so good. I'm very excited for phase four of the MCU. I'm a little upset because COVID disrupted the schedule, you know, so like without COVID, we would have had WandaVision and then Doctor Strange coming out in May. When's it coming out? Next year. Oh, okay. But never fear, y'all, because we get not one, not two, but four phase four movies. So Black Widow will drop and then um, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. um, And then we're getting the Eternals and, of course, Spider-Man No Way Home. I am very excited about that. And it was fun to watch WandaVision with Samari, who finally caught up and sob and sob. We watched it again. And both of us, as soon as we started watching the finale again, we're like, why are we watching it again? And then sob. <laughs> There's an amazing video that Michael posted on Facebook of him walking into the room after the two of them have just finished watching the finale of WandaVision and they are just a mess. It's, a mess <laughs> is a good word. For okay, so Jessica and I were talking and she told me to watch, but... The way that y'all are crying, I'm like, do I have the emotional bandwidth to watch this? It ends, you'll cry at the end, but it's a good ending. I cry in everything, so. Oh, you'll cry. I say, I mean, go for it. Okay. So, yeah, so that is definitely what's good. I also, there was a, a, you know, Peloton does artist series rides. There was a Meg the Stallion ride that we finally were blessed with that, I don't know, it was just so, my colleague Janelle called it. She said, I've been buoyant ever since that. And I and I feel the same. Like, my to-do list isn't any smaller. I'm still just as stressed. But somehow it's, like, ricocheting off me. And part of this, right, we know that Mer- Mercury came out of retrograde. But also now it's entering into Gemini, which is, um, I think, contributing to the light and airy feeling I am. Last night, my family had a wonderful family movie night to watch the premiere on Disney Plus of Raya and the Last Dragon. And we so enjoyed that. Um, it was it was fun, and, and I encourage everybody to watch it. I mean, it is premiere access right now, which is really annoying. But it's like, I try to say, like, I would spend that on a movie theater if we were going there. So instead, we all hung out, and we had some bubble tea, and we watched Raya. And it's always fun to watch a, a kick-ass heroine just flourish, um, and, and we enjoyed the movie a lot. Um, the, the biggest, uh, what's good for me is that as soon as we're done with this, I'm hitting the road with Samari and going on a writing retreat for the week, um, to try to, you know, do the final push of this book. And I had a major breakthrough with the organization for one of my chapters. Um, so I'm feeling a little bit inspired right now and I'm hoping to sustain that energy moving forward. So that's what's good with me. 
So what are we watching this week? Well, I just want to draw attention again to Athletes Unlimited. They are playing volleyball now. Um, they will be going into week three, and the games are on FS1 and FS2. They're also uh, a wonderful documentary um, that's being produced by Highlight Her and our friend Ari Chambers um, with black softball players. They have a new episode about um, black hair in softball, and these drop uh, throughout the season. So check out the games as well as the content coming out um, from uh, that documentary. If we didn't turn you off enough from college sports, we are rolling into March Madness. Uh, the selection shows will be on uh, Sunday the 14th and Monday the 15th, respectively, for um, the men's and women's tournaments, and that will commence in the next week or so. Um, we're in the postseason play now for basketball, so the SEC tournament and Big Ten, et cetera, et cetera, are all underway. Check that out um, if you want to. That's it for this week on Burn It All Down. Check out our podcast wherever you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, etc. We appreciate your views and your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, share. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. Email us, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You'll find previous episodes, transcripts, a link to our Patreon. Right now on our Patreon play page, uh, you have bloopers, you have our So You Think You Know Your Co-host content, and then for Patreon um, subscribers at the $10 level or more, we just sent out a registration for our next Fireside Chat. Our Fireside Chat will be happening on Friday, March 19th, 7 p.m. Please come out. Uh, if you are a Patreon $10 or more, check out that post, register, formal invitations to follow. We had such a fun time at the first one. We hope you check it out. Burn on, not out, and we'll see you next week, flamethrowers.